Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Danger on Delmarva, a podcast that explores the tragedies and disasters that have occurred on the Delmarva Peninsula, an area in the mid-Atlantic region of the United States that encompasses Delaware, Maryland to the east of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, and Virginia to the north of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel, which is not the same thing as the Bay Bridge. My name is Rhonda Franny Jefferson, and I will be your host to take you down the sometimes treacherous paths that wind around Delmarva. Today, I will be discussing a tragedy that cost the lives of 81 people. If you are from Delmarva, you might be scratching your head wondering what tragedy I'll be talking about. But no worries, you will soon know all about this event that changed the course of aviation. So before I really get into the story, today I always just want to say that this podcast reflects my personal interest in the exploration of how or why an event occurred to try to understand the reasoning behind the acts and decisions of others. I mean no disrespect to any parties mentioned in the podcast. I have obtained facts for this information through publicly available sources from the internet YouTube, and other documentaries that are available. In some cases, my personal observations about the area and knowledge about certain areas may be discussed. The podcast is produced for informational purposes, and as I have gleaned the information from publicly available sources, I cannot guarantee that everything involving accuracy, completeness, or validity, I or my podcast cannot be held responsible for any errors, misinformation and time delays, such as there are further developments or updates after the publication of this podcast. Now, as a warning, each episode may discuss injury, death, emotional and mental health, and may contain triggers regarding various instances. I also want to discuss a little bit about geography. The incident in this episode takes place in Elkton, Maryland. If you have had a chance to listen to the last episode regarding the Newcastle County Courthouse shooting, you may have recognized Elkton as the town where the matriarch of the Matusowitz family was apprehended. Elkton is about 57 miles from Baltimore, heading northwest, and about 51 miles southeast of Philadelphia. It's pretty much right in the middle of these two larger cities. Elkton is close to being outside of Delmarva, but it just squeaks in under the wire. So today we're going a little bit back in time, almost 60 years ago, to December 8th, 1963. At 4.10 p.m., Pan Am Flight 214 took off from the Isla Verde International Airport in San Juan, Puerto Rico. The airplane had already flown the opposite route earlier in the day under the flight number of 213. Flight 214 was scheduled to stop over in Baltimore at Friendship International Airport, which has since been renamed Baltimore-Washington International, then subsequently Baltimore-Washington International Thurgood Marshall Airport. For the sake of clarity, I will just refer to this as Baltimore. The crew was experienced and more than competent. The pilot was 45-year-old George F. Newth. 
He had been with the company for 22 years, which I must say I was surprised to see. This would mean that he had been with them since 1941, beginning his career with them when he was only 23 years old. He had a little over 17,000 flight hours, of which 2,890 were on this particular type of plane, the Boeing 707. To further explain his acuity in flying, he had been the pilot of a Lockheed Constellation under Pan Am Flight 100 when a small single-engine plane crashed into his. Unfortunately, the occupants of the Cessna did pass away, but somehow he was able to land the Lockheed with no injuries on board. John R. Dale was the 48-year-old first officer. He had a total of almost 14,000 hours of flying time, of which 2,681 were in a Boeing 707. The cockpit had to be very crowded that day because on top of having a first officer, there was also a second officer. This was a Mr. Paul L. Oranger of New Rochelle, New York, which is actually just down the road from where I went to college. So I'm pretty familiar with the area that he was from. Um, he had just a little over 10,000 hours of flying experience and 2,808 of that was in a Boeing 707. And along with him was a flight engineer, John R. And I apologize if I do not pronounce this 100% correctly, Cantaliner of Long Island. Now he had a total flying time of 6,066 hours but only 76 hours were in this Boeing 707 model. So I almost wonder if there were so many people on board that day to help the engineer kind of to guide him, give instruction, um, things like that. The first leg of the return flight was as normal as anyone could ever expect. They made it to Baltimore and dropped off 67 passengers, leaving 73 on board. Those who disembarked at Baltimore had no idea how close they came to a tragedy. Baltimore and Philadelphia are pretty close geographically. If I'm ever in need of flying somewhere, I check both airports as they are about the same distance from me. And even if driving the distance, it's not extremely long between Baltimore and Philadelphia. So at 8.24 p.m. the plane left Baltimore ready to proceed and land for the day at their next destination of Philadelphia. But it was not to be such a quick and easy trip as I'm sure that many were expecting. Even with the two airports being as close as they were to each other, the weather would be an issue while approaching Philly. The crew didn't know what to expect with this weather being provided with a briefing as well as a folder that contained weather forms. Part of the briefing did include information that the storm had just recently passed through Baltimore and they were told that they would probably encounter it near Philadelphia. When the crew called in to the Philly ATC or air traffic control at 842, they were told that the area had severe thunderstorms. So, this storm itself did not seem to be just a really quick pop-up storm. The winds were more like a gale and some of them would gust up to 50 miles per hour. Lightning was seen frequently in that area. 
And from a passenger standpoint, it must have been awe-inspiring to see the streaks of lightning across the sky while you were at 5,000 feet in the air. If I were to see this on a flight, I don't know personally if I would stare because I knew that I would probably never get a chance to experience that again or if I would hide my eyes and try not to think about it. But lightning is normal for flights. It is estimated that each plane gets struck by lightning approximately two times a year. Many planes have commercial lives that can last for decades, so planes are made to withstand this. On another note, I found myself actually checking the date of the accident as far as the month. While this area is not necessarily bombarded with sleet and snow during the winter, I found the timing of a thunderstorm in December to be just a tad unique. I was almost wondering if a nor'easter had been coming up the coast. But without going too far off on a tangent, as a result of this storm, there were already some planes that were in a holding pattern as they decided to wait out the storm. There were five planes that were already in this pattern. Air traffic control let the pilots of Flight 214 make their own decision on whether they wanted to hold or divert to another airport. They decided to wait it out. So they stayed at the 5,000 feet, waiting amidst the rain and the wind in anticipation that they would land soon. At around 8.50, the crew advised air traffic control that they were ready for a clearance to land. However, ATC said that they would be cleared as soon as they could. After about eight minutes, ATC received a hasty radio call of Mayday, 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 Clipper 214 out of control. Here we go. Personally, I do watch a number of engineering and aviation shows. This is probably the most haunting call that I've ever heard. And I haven't even heard the actual recording. I've just heard a number of people say the same words that I just said. I think it's the here we go that says to me that the crew knew what was going on and most likely the passengers knew. And I just can't imagine being in that situation knowing that the plane was going down that quickly. On the other hand, as we explore more about this accident, I almost wonder how many people actually would have had a chance to understand what was going on. So another plane was about 1,000 feet above 214. This was National Airlines Flight 16, and they were the next to call into ATC with the message of, Clipper 214 is going down in flames. Clipper was the nickname or call sign for this particular plane. So shifting my thoughts now as a witness to those who were on the plane, the crew and the passengers of all of those five flights, the residents of Elkton or those who were traveling on the roads that connected the cities, um, those who may have even been on one of the large bridges in the area that connected the western shore to the eastern shore, this is a high traffic area. So everyone who saw this happen must have felt that they were living in a nightmare. They were in just this juxtaposition of emotion, whether it was fear, relief, sadness. And for those who were on other planes, I almost wonder if there was a survivor's guilt, even though they were not on the exact same flight. 
But speaking for myself, I would probably be asking, why not us? Even before I knew the reason for the accident. By 8.59, less than one minute after the Mayday call, Flight 214 crashed. A cornfield close to Elkton was where the plane landed. The jet fuel caused the cornfield where the plane fell stricken to catch fire. While dispatchers urgently called for everyone available to get to the site as quickly as possible, rescue attempts would be in vain. All people aboard the 707 perished, all 81. So help did arrive quickly. A police officer who was a Maryland state trooper was the first on the scene. His words indicate the level of destruction that hit this plane. And I quote, it wasn't a large fire. It was several smaller fires. A fuselage with about eight or 10 window frames was about the only large recognizable piece I could see when I pulled up. It was just a debris field. It didn't resemble an airplane. The engines were buried in the ground 10 to 15 feet from the force of the impact, end quote. These fires burned for four hours. The recovery truly was a collective effort. Firefighters, police officers from Cecil County, which was the county that Alton was located in, responded. So did other agencies that were equipped to lend a hand in this mass casualty event. The United States Navy Training Center in Bainbridge helped patrol the area to protect the integrity of the scene and to secure the dignity of the lives that were lost. Then, as now, it was expected that people would come to witness the recovery, seeking a piece of information or a piece of debris that they could obtain where no one else could. Sadly, the occupants of the plane did finally make it to Philadelphia but it was to the National Guard Armory where a makeshift morgue had been established. Of course, family members showed up to see and to identify their loved ones. It is here that I think of another air crash that I've watched a video on, and it's one in which I can't recall the flight number, but when the medical examiner in charge was given the podium to speak at a press conference, he was really at a loss for words. It was a place that he did not want to be, and he really didn't know what to say to these family members. This was also a very, very destructive accident that made identification very difficult. And so, to paraphrase what he said, once he took to the podium, he just simply told them that they would never see their loved ones again. He wanted to be delicate, but at the same time, firm. The family members needed to understand what was going on and what the next few days, weeks, and months would even look like. That, unfortunately, they would not be able to identify their loved ones. So that had to be truly heartbreaking for him. He may have given notifications of death or had family members come in to identify family members before, but to have, you know, that many people on a flight have an accident where that many people would not be able to be identified had to be heart-wrenching. And this was a similar situation with Pan Am Flight 214. 
the victims would not be able to be identified just by looking at them. At the time before DNA, they had to explore avenues of identification. So they used fingerprints, dental records, sometimes even impersonal objects to ID everyone. The investigation began behind the eight ball, so to speak. The crash was not localized at one particular point. While the crash sites were relatively close to each other, the debris, with pieces both big and small, had left a trail of destruction in its wake. Even without the report from National Airlines flight that the plane had exploded, the crash itself would have indicated that the plane had broken up in flight. That is always a starting point for investigators to determine whether or not a plane fell in one piece or if it had broken up before it ever hit the ground. If the four corners, that's the nose, tail, and two wingtips, are not close to each other, that indicates that something tore the plane apart. From that point, investigators need to determine why it came apart. Um, I really don't know the terminology that you know investigators may use, but I understand it as internal and external factors. I would say internal factors would mean something that's naturally aboard the plane, such as a part that malfunctioned or human error by a pilot, um, but external factors would be something that's happening outside. Um, you know, even if it's something that opens the plane up, such as explosives or fire, um, these are things that aren't naturally on a plane. And back then, people could actually still smoke on planes, uh, and it would not have been the first time that someone put a cigarette out in, say, a trash can in the bathroom, and a fire started. Um, that was actually, unfortunately, somewhat commonplace in that time. So having a determination of whether or not a plane fell as one piece or in different parts would determine the course for the investigation. So for this one, it was the left wing that would tell the story of the flight's destruction and the surrounding destruction that caused a massive 40-foot wide hole in a road. It shattered windows of a nearby home and it left just a swath of burning jet fuel throughout the region. So at this time, instead of the current NTSB or National Transportation Safety Board, there was a Civil Aeronautics Board or CAB. Though not explicitly stated in any of the sources that I've read, I would imagine that they were able to get to the location pretty quickly, usually taking somewhere around a two-hour drive to go from Washington, D.C., which is where they were dispatched from, to Elkton. As is the case with investigations today, the investigation team consisted not only of the core team of CAB agents, but specialists within the direct aviation world took part. So in order to assist with the specific attributes of the crew, of the flight, of maintenance and construction, representatives from Boeing, Pan Am, the Airline Pilots Association, Pratt and Whitney who made the engine, the FBI and the FAA all took part. I can only imagine what the conversations between all of these agencies must have been like along with these individual companies. This investigation was also not the norm for the time. 
The cost of an average investigation usually was about $10,000 at that time, but this one cost about $125,000. Those were just of CAB funds, not to mention any other funds spent by any of the other agencies. Today, respectively, those amounts would equal around $85,000 and $1,060,000. Now, before we start to review the findings, I think it's important to review the layout of the plane, more specifically the fuel tanks. This plane had also just been refueled not too long before the accident, with over 27,000 pounds of fuel being added to what had already remained in the tanks. And this particular model had a few different tanks. While the plane was being refueled, it was also inspected and things appeared to be normal with no concerns. So starting with the left side of the plane, there were two tanks called the Reserve Tank 1 and Main Tank 1. This was mirrored to the right wing with Reserve Tank 4 and Main Tank 4. Under the fuselage itself was the center tank. The tanks held a mixture of two different types of jet fuel, types A and B. Type A is basically just kerosene. Now type B is kerosene with a mixture of gasoline. This is beneficial when temperatures are extremely cold. Now if you'd like to see a chart with the breakdown of the percentages and what type of fuel was in each tank, it will be with the link called lessonslearned.faa.gov. Um, if you are new to the podcast, I always do um, put all of my sources in the description of the podcast notes so that you can always link to them and you know read them if you want more information. And of course, to give credit to those who you know who have done research prior to me. Now, this particular plane was actually the oldest jet within the whole U.S. fleet. So, at this time, the jet as we know it was relatively new. This plane was only about five years old. However, it did have a history of at least one major incident. While in France, the plane was taking part of a training flight over France. And honestly, if I had known about this history before I were to have boarded a plane like this, I think I would have been hesitant. While on this training flight, an engine fell off. So hearing that at any time really makes me concerned about, you know, the sturdiness of at least the one wing. But um, the plane was actually fixed and put back into service. What had occurred was there was an unplanned spin when the the training flight was to get to a lower speed, um, but as the plane was spinning and going down, it was met with really extremely high forces, and that affected the plane so badly that the engine just fell off. Now, getting back to the incident in Elkton, the investigators had a number of witnesses. Um, I'm going to quote the breakdown of what the witnesses reported they saw. Um, you know, and show how there are discrepancies sometimes in eyewitness testimony. So there were about 140 witnesses that were interviewed. 99 of those reported seeing an aircraft or flaming object in the sky. Seven witnesses stated that they had seen lightning strike the aircraft. 
72 witnesses said that the ball of fire occurred at the same time as or immediately after the lightning strike. 23 witnesses reported that the aircraft exploded after they had seen it ablaze. So there is some contradictory information and because these witnesses were being asked a number of different questions, it, they could be included in this response more than once um, depending on if they were asked multiple questions in regards to what they saw that night. Now the investigators um, were facing this other hurdle as well. The flight data recorder had faced forces that it was not built to withstand. I think that when we hear something like the black box, which by the way is misnamed, it's usually a brighter color so that it's easier to find, we think of this indestructible box that cannot be damaged. But, you know, about with everything, there is a limit in which something can be built to withstand. And these boxes are built to withstand up to 100 times the force of gravity. And this recorder faced twice that. So that means 200 times the force of gravity. But somehow, and thankfully, they were able to still get about 95% of the data from the recorder. Now, undertaking of the debris collection and removal was also massive. And I think that given the disbursement of the debris, it was completed in a relatively short time. It took 12 days to collect the wreckage with 16 truckloads being transferred to Bowling Air Force Base, the location that the CAB would use as you know, a base or staging area to try to put the wreckage back together in hopes of coming to an answer as to what took the flight down. Looking at the debris with damage to the actual structure to the metal, where the aluminum was actually melting, it was clear that there had been a fire on board. After further examination, metal on the wing showed an outward curve to holes in the metal, showing that the explosion came from within. This led credence to the witnesses who said that the plane was burning while it fell. Location zero, if you will, was a left wingtip. This was found a little further away than much of the other debris at about three miles from the main wreckage site. The investigators considered that turbulence brought on by high winds could have caused some type of damage to the left wing and caused a failure but none of the other planes reported any issues with this. Also, one of the other planes that was in the holding pattern was hit by lightning and they had no issues. After reviewing all aspects of the crash, especially the condition of the wing and the weather conditions at the time, the CAB was narrowing in on a theory, lightning. This idea was not met with an enthusiastic reception. Pilots and experts knew that most planes did get struck by lightning with little or no adverse effects. The thought that lightning would bring a plane down did not seem possible. However, there was a plane that approximately four years earlier did that. It exploded due to static electricity, lighting fumes from the fuel. Could something like this have happened to Pan Am Flight 214? This led the CAB to try to research and test theories 
about how or if lightning could cause the fumes to ignite. Within the week, they had garnered enough information to issue a directive. So a directive is mandatory, not optional. To install static electricity dischargers on Boeing jets. These dischargers do not affect the flow of lightning, but the FAA had reviewed all information and felt that this was a step in the right direction. What these dischargers do, it allows static electricity to flow more evenly when being discharged into the air. Planes are prone to static electricity, especially when flying through a storm. Just as the friction from you walking across a carpet in the right conditions, then touching a door handle and feeling a shock, a plane flying through wind and rain creates exponentially more static. So at this point, there were two parts of the investigation. There was the disagreement amidst the experts as to whether or not static dischargers would have any beneficial impact. Um, they felt that it could also bring about a sense of security by be making people think that even if lightning was found to be the cause of this accident, the dischargers would take care of the issue. The other part of the investigation that was still continuing was trying to figure out what conditions would, if they could, allow a lightning strike to damage a plane to the point that a crash was not survivable. The FAA then looked at the type of fuel. Remember, there were two types of fuel that were in the tanks, type A and type B. And each of these types of fuel had their own advocates and protractors. Type A had a higher ignition point. Type B, with the addition of gasoline, had a lower ignition temperature. So Pan Am was actively involved in aiding with the investigation to the best of their abilities. And the pilots on this next test must have had the nerves of steel because Pan Am tried to fly in a manner that simulated turbulence so that the crew had faced on flight 214. This test showed that fuel did not discharge from the plane itself, but it did move into a vent system. It collected in the surge tanks, then eventually returned back to the regular tank. This would create fumes going throughout the tanks of the plane. So what Pan Am decided to do was to be proactive. They were going to inject inert or an active gas um, into the tanks so that would lessen the chance of the fumes being there and igniting. So when the final report was actually released from the CAB in March of 1965, the CAB had decided that all the evidence pointed to a lightning strike, which went on to ignite fumes that had gathered in the tanks that contained, contained the combination fuel, which had the lower ignition point. One of the main reasons was looking at the left wing itself and where it had blistered. So the damage to that wing really helped lead them to this conclusion. And the decision on the cause of the accident in a lot of ways was a process of elimination. So to quote from the source for this information, despite one of the most intensive research efforts in its history, the agency could not identify the exact mechanics of the fuel ignition, concluding that lightning had ignited vapors through an as of yet unknown pathway. The board said, 
it is felt that the current state of the art does not permit an extension of test results to unqualified conclusions of all aspects of natural lightning effects. The need for additional research is recognized and additional programming is planned. So in other words, they knew that lightning caused it, but they didn't know 100% exactly how, um, even though they were able to determine it was from ignition from the fumes, they still wanted to do other tests to try to figure out exactly how that occurred. Um, because without knowing exactly why, then you know, the issue may pop up again. And with any accident investigation, the goal is to learn and try to prevent this from happening again. A saying comes to mind, and that is, you don't know what you don't know. While the experts were initially content or confident in their stance that lightning could not cause an airplane to crash, much less explode, they were proven wrong. In the aftermath, there was a commitment for more testing as well. By 1967, the FAA had made a mandate that fuel tanks must be made in such a way that fuel vapor would not ignite if struck by lightning. Other improvements included using a thicker aluminum surface on the wings and taking electrical bonding components into consideration. Something that to me seems ingenious in how they had to be designed was a fuel vent flame arresters. Really what these could do was detect if fuel vapors had ignited and stop them in their tracks. It would extinguish them before the fire had a chance to go anywhere. And one of the reasons I really find this fascinating is this was 1967. So this was something that would automatically be done without you know, the pilots having to really even know that something was happening. Now going back to that saying that you don't know what you don't know, unfortunately the investigation did not seem to take the testing to the next step. Lightning, as we all know, is electricity. And one night, while I was home from college, I remember I sat glued to the television, praying that survivors would be found in the Atlantic after flight TWA Flight 800 crashed into the water. As more video and pictures came into focus, I still tried to hold on to hope that someone had survived. I was just about to turn 20 and just from the reports that were coming in, you know, it indicated that there was a large number of students on board. And I just remember thinking about them and that, you know, their whole lives were ahead of them and in a matter of seconds it was gone. And so while this episode of this podcast is not about TWA 800 from 1996, And I say it this way because there was actually another crash of a TWA Flight 800 in 1964. It shows a correlation that I wish could have been made at the time of Pan Am 214. In TWA Flight 800, a short circuit created a spark which lit vapor from the fuel that was in the center tank. They were actually flying with the tank pretty much empty, and so that allowed just all of the vapors to accumulate at the top of the tank and really with as empty as it was through much of the tank. And the fuel was also extremely hot as the plane had to sit for at least an hour to take off um, 
they had to run the air conditioners for um, the passengers. What had occurred in an attempt for security is if a, if a bag was checked and the passenger itself was not on board, then the plane could not take off. So there was some confusion about a particular bag and come to find out it was actually on board the whole time. But because it was so hot the whole time that the plane was waiting, the air conditioners have been running and that created a lot of heat. So while this situation is not exact, it seems that some lessons were forgotten. So as I said, the center tank had this vapor content that was flammable and so did the tank on the left wing of Pan Am 214. Changes were made to make sure that vapor did not escape into areas that would be susceptible to lightning, but little if any thought was given to the electrical sources. But I do have the advantage of hindsight, of knowing what the outcome of the investigation would be. This also makes me think back to near the beginning of the Pan Am 214 investigation about how they would take electrical components into consideration. And this is where I'm thinking, how far did they go? Did they go far enough in thinking about, you know, all of the things that, you know, could cause some type of vapor ignition? So thanks to these investigations, the knowledge that engineers of today bring to the drawing board when planning the build of a plane is a much wider knowledge base. This knowledge also trickles down so that many people even outside of the aeronautic or aviation industries and even the engineering and electrical industries can recognize red flags. While watching documentaries, if I ever hear about um, a fuel tank or some other type of liquid that can create vapors, I really start to worry because I kind of have an idea of where the documentary might be going. Then I start to go over the what ifs. When it comes to this accident, I start to wonder, what if the crew decided not to stay in a holding pattern and had diverted? What if they waited 30 minutes and then decided to go to another airport? But the thing is, we will never know what the answer to those what ifs are. If Pan Am 214 had left and decided to divert to another airport, could lightning have struck another plane and had the same result if the plane also had some type of mixture of fuel in it? As we already know, one of the flights that were in holding pattern were already struck by lightning. So it's possible that one of the other four planes or even the same plane that had been hit could be hit by lightning again. So it was really just a matter of chance that this plane was there with that exact fuel mixture at that exact time. So, you know, what if people had known about this earlier? Again, goes back to the you, you don't know what you don't know. But we really need to take these accidents and learn and then go a step further because even if I sound a little bit critical about the flight or TWA flight 800, it really makes me think that if someone had maybe gone two steps further, that okay, we have static electricity covered with the dischargers, we have lightning covered as far as igniting the tanks, but what about the internal factors? 
those things that I was mentioning that are intrinsically part of the plane or the mechanics of the plane. You know, why then did no one really look at the electronic system within each plane? But we will never know what the answers to that will be. Would there be something that was so far out of the scope of understanding that at some point the accident could have still happened? Possibly. But, you know, looking at this from someone, you know, who's seen, who's seen documentaries and I'm living, you know, a decade or more after these events, and in the case of Pan Am 214, 60 years almost after the event, I do have that gift of hindsight and know, you know, what factors to look out for. So I just really look at these accidents and hope that the lessons learned do carry on because people died in this accident and with every accident aviation is made safer even going beyond aviation whether it's rail accidents ship accidents you know, the whole goal is to try to narrow down that intrinsic danger that you know any type of transportation has and especially transportation that you know, has a large number of passengers, you know, on the plane. We really need to kind of step up and make sure that we cover all the bases. And what I hope someday is taking the information, the engineering, everything that, you know, the investigators look at for in other types of accidents and be able to bring that to the, you know, everyday car, bus, you know, subways, because that's where the majority of people actually, you know, use for transportation. It's just when there's an airplane accident, it's usually a larger loss of life and it makes the news. But with, again, each accident, I would like to be able to see at least a little bit of that knowledge and understanding be able to be put forth into other areas. And as long as we keep studying these accidents, then there's always that possibility. You know, there are probably things that have gone on in other industries, such as the automotive industry, that we don't even know about that came, came to be because of investigations of other types of accidents. So we really need to pay respect to those who've lost their lives to make our traveling experiences much safer. So here ends this episode of Danger on Delmarva today. I do have a little bit of exciting news. Um, until I get the dates and everything actually settled, I will be doing um, a kind of a collaboration with another podcaster, and I find that very exciting. Um, also, I, I did a email interview, so not a verbal interview, um, for a publication based in Delaware. So once that comes out, I'll link that into um, the description of the next episode, you know, after it's produced, as well as put that on the Facebook page. And as always, with, you know, any of the sources, again, I'll make sure that I put them in the description in case you want to read more. I also want to kind of give a shout out to... Um, it's a YouTube channel, Mini Air Crash Investigations. I absolutely love that channel. 
Um, I've never really had a chance to communicate with the person who um, you know owns and creates everything on that channel but you can tell that he really really loves the topic and so when I was looking through and trying to find information on flight 214 you know knowing how far back and how old the accident was I wasn't sure if there would be anything on YouTube and I've seen every single one of his episodes at least once if not twice or three times and so I was pretty sure he had it and sure enough there was an episode and it really helped me understand some of the technical jargon um, some of the ways that he explained things in regards to the tanks so I will definitely leave that as a link as well um, because I you know going through the research there was a lot more that I found as far as you know numbers things like that in the written word but the way that the creator on many air crash investigations explains things um, and really breaks it down it really makes it understandable for those of us who are not in you know any engineering or aviation field so I definitely suggest you know taking a look at that channel if this is something that you're interested in and I always just you know I want to ask that if you really do like this channel and some of the things I go over um, just you know if you're on a podcatcher that allows comments allows reviews um, please go ahead and review that um, or leave a comment what that does is help the algorithms kind of see the podcast a little better and help other people find it so I would really really appreciate it if you could do that so that the podcast could grow and I appreciate everyone again taking some time out to listen to stories about Delmarva where I'm from and I hope everybody has a good rest of the week and I'll talk to you soon.